some things. I hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving, just spending time thanking God for all he's done. God surely is a good father. He is, he's given us much. And um, maybe some of you guys are aware, maybe you're not so aware that um, much of this, this, this work that started a little over a year ago uh, is supported and prayed for by many people, by many churches. Uh, when Kristen and I, my wife, moved about two years ago from D.C. to uh, plant a new work of God, uh, to, to see a church built up that worshiped Jesus, we weren't quite sure where in, in God's providence he landed us here, but um, Justin Pearson, Pastor Justin, who uh, pastors Sojourn Church down in Northern Virginia, who's a good friend of mine, um, his church financially and through prayer encourages and supports this ministry, and uh, just by way of thanks, he just wanted to send a note of encouragement to you all, so if you just look at the, the screen, uh, it, this is from him. Hey, Church at Bergen. Uh, my name's Justin. I'm the lead pastor at Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia, and just wanted to take a quick minute uh, to share with you how excited we are for what God is doing in and through your local church in Bergen County. Uh, we've been supporters of Church at Bergen since it started and are just grateful for what God has done, uh, is doing, and will do in and through that church to reach people with the gospel. Uh, we long to see more disciples made here in Fairfax, and we long to see more disciples made in the Northeast as well, uh, specifically in New Jersey, where you guys are doing ministry. Uh, and so we love you. We're excited for, uh, for everything that's going on. We're excited to be able to partner with you. It's a privilege for us to be able to do that, and that God has allowed us to be a part, a small part, uh, of what he has doing as he is building his church there in uh, Bergen County. So we love you guys. We pray for you. Uh, and we look forward to seeing what God will continue to do through you uh, in the coming years as you do ministry and preach and apply the gospel there in New Jersey. So if you ever find yourself in Fairfax, uh, feel free to stop by for a visit. We'd love to worship with you on a Sunday. Love you guys. Good. Anyways, uh, just wanted you to be encouraged, uh, Justin, and just your church. God's doing awesome things there down at Sojourn, and, and continue praying for them, and uh, thank God for the many people that, that he's put here. So uh, good, to, good to have you with us. Well, uh, we're going to be in Jonah, so if you have a Bible, why don't you grab it? Go to the book of Jonah. It is a uh, small book, two pages, 47 verses or so, so it's easy to flip past it. Um, it's near that back end of the Old Testament where you have all those good names for naming your kids, Obadiah, Habakkuk. Um, so just, just go to the back there and look. You'll see it. I'm glad someone liked it. Crystal thinks I'm funny. That's good. The rest of you think I'm a heat. So here we go. Why don't we pray to, uh, to help our hearts and, uh, and just to, that God would do something special this morning. So God, we're grateful that you're a God that, that cares to reveal yourself. Uh, we're thankful that you're a God that, that is concerned with us, that a God who is not as abstract or has his hands off of this world, but is intimately involved in uh, the workings of all that happens according to your perfect will. God, thank you that you're a good father. Thank you that you have relentlessly pursued us in Christ and chased us down in our rebellion. And God, that you long to see many reconciled to yourself for the praise of your glory and joy of our souls. Uh, God, teach us um, through this study of this book. God, thank you for putting it in here. You say all scripture is God-breathed God and helpful and profitable for training in righteousness, for rebuke, for reproof, for growing in godliness. May you do that. May it please you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Jonah chapter 1. Now, um, 
just, just to say, this is, this is the plan. Like I always say, I'm not quite sure what God will do. This is the hope. So Jonah is a bit more narrative in nature. So, so, so Jonah is more of a story than, than a book like Ephesians that gives you a lot more hands-on practical living in your Christian life. So um, we're going to look at Jonah 1 today. We're going to look at the whole chapter and probably do four weeks in Jonah. Take a good spectrum of the book and that will put us at Christmas Eve. Now, some of you guys were laughing when I told you that. You're like, okay, yeah, right. Uh, we're going to be in here 2018 and you're still going to be in chapter 2. So that could happen. I don't think it will, um, but we're going to see all that God has to say more from a narrative perspective, looking at the story and pulling out some bits and pieces that I believe God might want us to see in here. So uh, Jonah chapter one. Now, um, just to shape our study a bit, to give you guys some grounding on understanding the time and place, you have to understand God's hope for Israel. If you understand God's hope for Israel, that'll help you read this book. So God's main design in choosing the nation of Israel was he chose them to be a missionary nation to the rest of the nations. Okay, so you're going to see periodically and, and even more so in other letters where God tells this group of people, Israel, hey, you're supposed to act a certain way, love a certain way, live under my law a certain way, under my commands a certain way, so that you might be a, a, a visible display of me. So people look and marvel at your wisdom and knowledge and go, who's the source of that wisdom and knowledge? And of course, they wanted them to point them to the one true God who was the God of Israel. So the whole purpose of God calling them was so that they'd be a light and a witness to the other nations. And you see this in Deuteronomy 4. Just look at this text on the screen. Moses says this, See, I have taught your statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Of it. See, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Okay, so God's saying to his people, if you are the people who you ought to be, if you, if you actually obey my commands and love me as your, as your chief shepherd and leader, then other people are going to look at you and go, okay, wow, they're going to marvel at the wisdom and knowledge and the ways that you live and go, okay, who's the source of that? And you're supposed to point their eyes to me. Now, now here's what happened in the midst of that is, is God, what he did was he started calling these, these special men called prophets to go and proclaim this message. And they would do it first to the nation of Israel. Okay, so what they would do is the prophets would go and proclaim first God's word to the nation of Israel saying, okay, to keep your purity, to keep your holiness, to keep you as a, as a proper reflection of me, these are the things you should do. And then what they would do is go and preach to other nations. And in other nations, it was more of a call of judgment and repentance for sin, saying, turn to this God, this God is good, this God is saving. And here's what's astonishing. If you just look throughout the Old Testament, years and years and years before the incarnate Jesus Christ comes and dies for sin and rises, you've got these prophets saying over and over and over again that this will happen. That God's a good God who offers forgiveness a God who offers remedy for your sin, a God who's going to extend his grace not just to you and the fold of Israel, but to those who are far off. And so you're gonna see this pattern happen. So God is in the business of sending messengers to preach repentance and faith in the one true God of the world. And so here we meet one of those prophets, a guy named Jonah. And right in verse one, here's what we learn about Jonah, some amazing stuff. Now when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Isn't that just awesome? Doesn't that just grip your heart? right? That's a joke, right? Like, I mean, there doesn't seem to be a lot in there, right? I mean, he's the son of Amittai, so we don't get a lot about Jonah in the Bible. Do you know that? I mean, this is, this is about all you get. If you, if you go to 2 Kings 14, there's a little bit we learn about Jonah. It's simply this. He's a prophet of God. 
Okay, so, so there's not like a whole lot of biography about Jonah that we could dive into. You could do more historical study, but scripture alone, we know that he was a prophet. We know he was someone who did kind of ride the coattails of Elisha um, and Elijah, right? In 2 Kings, I think, uh, 1 or 1 Kings something, it, it talks about that. You can go look at that later for fun. But, but you see that he's this guy that kind of rides the coattails of these two big prophets. So I don't know, maybe uh, he was really well respected. Maybe there were other people that kind of looked down on him because of who he followed. But all we know is that he was a prophet of God who was talked Taught, taught by God to speak from God, and when he spoke, those things happened, and when those things happened, people listened. So you can bet this guy's very respected in his surrounding influence. Okay, he's a man of religious supremacy around the people that he was with because they saw him as a prophet. He was a respected man. He was a, he was a revered man, and he really communicated to the people of God about what God has, had said. Now, as far as timeline People think this is in between like 750 B.C. to 850 B.C., but here's what you need to know. This was during a time when Israel was flourishing as a nation under King Jeroboam II. Okay, what that meant was their economy was strong, the nation was growing, their boundaries were enlarging. But here what was going on during that time as they were growing, as their economy was strong, is Assyria was doing these like guerrilla raids. So they would come in and attack them and, and beat up on them. And so Assyria is the capital, and the capital city of Assyria is Nineveh. Okay, so Nineveh was not a place that they liked. Okay, they were seen as a threat. There, there was this growing army happening in Assyria. And so they, this was not like a, a nice group of people. If you actually read Nahum, okay, the prophet Nahum, he actually prophesies against Nineveh as well. He calls them wicked, rebellious, idolatrous people. They, they were brutal. I mean, they were cruel people. Some of the ways they would, they would uh, take people in, in brutality is they'd bury them in the sand and leave their head exposed so the sun would just scorch them till they died. Like, just, just awful, awful, awful ways of killing and persecuting people. And, and here, at this very moment, God calls Jonah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go, go to Nineveh, okay? <laughs> go tell these people to repent of what they're doing. And God speaks to him and says this, verse two, arise, Go to Nineveh, this great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Okay, so as I said, Assyria was growing as a powerful army. Some people believe there were up to maybe two million people. And I'll explain that later. I know in, in, in verse four you're thinking about 120,000. Don't know the right hand from the left. Many believe that actually that 120,000 means children. He's describing the children because they don't know the right hand from their left. There was a three-day journey to get across it. So this is, a, this, is a, this is a massive city. This is a big city, a wicked city, a rebellious city, an idolatrous city. And, and here he says to them, go preach a message of repentance. Now, it was a place that was advanced culturally. So because it was a place that was advanced culturally, the people there were very arrogant. Okay, they were very prideful people. And, and in their pride, they would do all sorts of wickedness like I shared. So God says three things. Get up. Go and tell them to repent. This is insane. Like, like you, you've got to put yourself in Jonah's shoes. I mean, this is like God coming to you in World, World, World War II in Nazi Germany going, hey, can you go knock on Hitler's door and tell him to stop it? Like, like what? Like, are you kidding me? Right? I mean, that's how crazy this is. This wicked nation doing horrible things. And he just says, hey, why don't you go in there and just tell him to stop? When you go tell me, hey, that God says repent of this wickedness and turn to God. I mean, 
it's no wonder, right? I mean, let's just, let's just be sympathetic for a second, right? A lot of us know this story, he's gonna run, right? You'd run too, okay, probably, right? You'd probably grab all your stuff and be like, I ain't going in there, I ain't going to Hitler's door and knocking on his door and telling him to stop it. That's a death wish, right? And here, here is, is what we see. This is what Jonah does, verse three. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Okay, he's not running from the literal presence of the Lord. Okay, we know that God is, is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's running from availability. He's trying to escape being available. He wants to hide. He doesn't like what God's asking him to do. Now, at this point, we naturally probably say, of course he ran. Guy's terrified. Who wants to go into Nineveh, this wicked city that's utterly cruel and is a growing army and powerhouse, and, and tell the people to repent? Seems totally implausible almost, right? Get the entire city to repent? One guy? Are you giving me like a Roman army with me? I mean, what are you doing, right? They didn't even exist then. And and here God calls them further. You know, many of the Jews, the furthest thing from their mind was letting Gentiles hoard in on their goods. They they liked being the chosen people of God. You know that? There was this arrogance that would bubble up in, in the Israelites going, I don't want people horning in on my good gifts that I get from God. I don't want Gentiles sharing in on the goodness of our God. Just utter wickedness in their hearts, right? And, and so with all that going on, we also get a window. And the other reason Jonah ran later in chapter four, it's surprising, look at it. We'll get into this more in a couple weeks, but God has just caused the whole city to repent. Now I know I just blew it, okay? I know I just blew the whole letter. If you thought this was like a movie that was gonna build and build and build and build, you know, you could have read it yesterday, okay, and seen that God causes them to repent. So God causes the whole city to repent, and here is what just, just blows my mind after this. Chapter four, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah says, I ran from your call to go preach repentance and sin, not because I was afraid. And not just because I didn't want the Gentiles horning in on all of our stuff. He goes, I ran because I know your character. Like, I I know you're gracious, I know you're slow to anger, and I knew you would cause them to repent, and I didn't want that. I couldn't stand the thought of rebellious sinners being forgiven by the grace of God. Wow. I mean, I couldn't stand the thought of an oppressor of Israel being forgiven and shown grace. They don't deserve grace, they deserve punishment, they deserve judgment, they deserve 2 Kings 18 fire from heaven. And he says he knows his character and nature, and he couldn't stand the thought of it. The root issue here at the end of the day for Jonah builds up to his self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is just all the things you do to find security and refuge in you and not in Jesus, to build your empire, build your identity, build your security, build your place of standing. And as soon as that's removed from you, your, your life falls apart. 
And he was so self-righteous in all his religious activity, all of his prophesying, that he was blind to the grace that God had shown him and it hadn't transformed his heart in the way that it should. And we see this here. And so his heart was instead of a place of loving the lost, he despised them. He didn't want salvation for Nineveh, he wanted condemnation. He was afraid of mercy being shown to sinners. He was afraid of grace being extended to wicked people. Now, why would God, okay, is God, would we say God's all-knowing? Good, okay, I'm just checking, I just, theology tap, just wanted to see how you, how you felt about that. Okay, we, we all agree on that. We're all on the playing field. Even if you're in here and you're kind of like, yeah, okay, well, there is a God, he does exist, he's probably all-knowing because he's God and he made everything, okay? So even if you disagree with it, right? So God is all-powerful, he's sovereign, he's in control of everything, he knows all things. So why would a God who's like this ask a man who God knows is self-righteous, who he knows his wicked bent and tendency, why would God tell him to go and preach repentance to a group of people like this when he knew he didn't like God's character in that way. Why would God do that? I mean, wouldn't God want to pick the guy who was like totally ready, understood the grace of God in his life to a degree that, that blew away other people so he knew, yeah, I call this guy, he's gonna go. God, God called Jonah precisely because he was those things. Like that's an act of love to Jonah because he knew that Jonah wasn't experiencing the grace and mercy of God in his life. And so he was calling him to see where he was being self-righteous. And he wouldn't be able to see where he's being self-righteous if God hadn't called him to go. God knew the very things that were tendencies in him. So this, act, this is an act of grace from God. He wanted Jonah to see, even though you're religious, even though you look religious, even you do a lot of good religious things, even though you prophesy and you hear from God, you communicate it and things happen when you say it, your identity is not rooted in that. Like, you're, you're, that's the empire you're building around yourself is I'm a prophet. And as soon as I ask you to do something like this, you ignore it because you're so self-righteous in all that you're doing that you haven't even been transformed by the grace of God to long for other sinners to repent and believe. It, it's, it's an amazing thing that we're, that we're seeing here. And so, because up until this point, Jonah's a big deal. He's a prophet. Like, he's well-respected. Like, people listen to him. And so here you see God kind of weeding in on this. And, and how easy do you think it was for Jonah to find his total identity in that, being a prophet? Right? Now, how easy would it be to find his whole security refuge in, well, man, when I talk, people listen. I talk from God, so I'm a pretty big deal. So I moved to varsity out of JV. You're still down in JV. So he would look down on other people, and all of a sudden, God calls him to do something radical to extend grace to sinners, but he's so caught up in who he is He's self-righteous in being a prophet. And what's being revealed is actually his heart is wicked. Actually, his heart is proud. Actually, his heart is so self-centered and self-absorbed because he only wants what's good for him. It's amazing. His heart never reached a place where he could walk in religious activity all day long but never truly experienced God's grace that transformed him to love a city and people who are far from God. Right, he would substitute his will for God's will. 
So, so let me tell you why this is really good news for you and for me. Because every one of us in this room is self-righteous just like Jonah. No one in this room escapes this. Right now, now <laughs> I know some of you guys right now, even as, as you're reading this, you're going, man, well, I don't like hate the loss like he does. Well, maybe you're self-righteous in the reality that you don't hate the loss like him. I mean, I mean, maybe you, you, you kind of proud, proud yourself because, man, well, I love lost people. I love sharing my food with my neighbor, and I know Jim or Sally or Ann in here, they don't do that, so that, that makes you feel better. So it just bolsters your self-confidence. So all of a sudden, your identity is more in how well you perform a religious activity than Jesus being your identity. I mean, maybe some of you guys are like, man, well, I'm a, I'm a really good mom. Right? So if you see a mom not being as good a mom as you are, then all of a sudden you look down on them. Right, and you start judging them and you start bolstering self-confidence because what a good mom you are, right? Or maybe it's theology. Maybe for you it's like, man, well, well I just know every little, I've got all my theology lined out. Man, this, this guy hasn't even figured that out yet. I mean, he hasn't figured out the hermeneutics of Leviticus yet. I mean, what the heck, right? So all of a sudden, man, you're on varsity, he's on JV, and you are so bolstered in your self-confidence, finding self-righteousness in that defining you and not Jesus. Now, I don't know what it is for you, you can fill in the blank. What is it that you do or you're so good at that causes you to find if that was ripped away today, you'd be lost? Your job? You, you just love the job you have? You're so good at it? You make a lot of money and this and that, so you look down at that. So if that was removed from you, maybe you're self-righteous in your vocation. I, I don't know what it is for you, but... but Man, this is such an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. Maybe right now as you read this, self-righteousness is bubbling in your heart going, at least I'm not like Jonah. And in that, God's revealing how self-righteous you are. Because clearly there's something you think you're doing that he didn't do that you're better at that makes you a better pick. And what does the gospel do? It gives you no ground for boasting. The gospel gives you no room to think you're a big deal. Like it gives you no room to boast in any righteousness of your own because God says, I saved you regardless of you. You didn't do anything. You didn't earn it. You didn't, you didn't pray well. You didn't go to church more. You didn't do more righteous acts. You didn't not go to Nineveh or go to Nineveh or study your Bible better than somebody else. Jesus, in his goodness and mercy, pursued you and said, I'm going to save you. In your rebellion, and we're gonna see a beautiful picture of that right here. Now, let me tell you why self-righteousness is so cancerous. Because it's not just the reality that we're all bent with a tendency to be self-righteous. It's that that leads to us building our entire empire around that thing that we're self-righteous in. So for Jonah, it wasn't just that he was self-righteous, it was that him hearing from the true God and speaking about the true God became the very thing that he built his whole identity around. Because listen, self-righteousness shrivels your love for God and breeds entitlement around everyone who's in the fold of God. That's what self-righteousness does. Because you think you deserve this gospel and they don't deserve it. So it shrivels love for God and for those outside the fold, and then it breeds entitlement for those people that are in the fold of God. 
So not only do you think, well, man, those people are just wicked pagans. They don't deserve what I got. God was smart in picking me and drafting me onto the team, God, right? Or the other side, where you think you have entitlement now, so you walk around with swagger that you don't deserve, that you didn't earn. God, God gave you the mercy. God gave you the grace that he showed you in Christ. And so here is where we see this happening. Now, we can only respond in one of two ways, right, to this, when God reveals this. Number one, outright repent, Right? Just acknowledge it, right? God, that's sin. It's arrogance. It's counter to the gospel. I'm prideful. I have a wicked heart. Transform me by your grace. The other way, you can respond is the way Jonah did. Just run. Just hide. When sin's exposed, just hide from it. Here's what we see in verse three. Jonah rose to flee Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Here's why this is not good. Jonah runs from God and he hides. What is this? Genesis 3, all over again, right? I mean, the second sin's exposed in Adam and Eve, they run to hide, right? Get out of his presence, get away from it. My sin's exposed, I realize I'm naked, I'm now ashamed, I'm now not not ashamed, and so I gotta get away from him and God seeks him out. So here, here we see this happening again where as soon as their sin's exposed, they try to hide from God. Guys, that's like trying to flee from the light. You flee from the light, where do you end up? In darkness, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's fleeing reward for punishment, fleeing joy for sorrow, trading wisdom for ignorance, wealth for poverty, peace for chaos. That's what you're doing when you choose to run from God instead of turn in obedience to God. And so he finds the ship leaving for Tarshish to escape the weight of his sin. Now, hear me. There's always a ship leaving for Tarshish in your life. There's always a boat leaving the station. So, so the question is, what's your boat to Tarshish, right? As soon as your sin's exposed. Maybe it's you just getting around those people that'll help you justify your sin. You love that, so you'll get on that boat because, oh, they'll just make me feel better. Or maybe you're struggling in your marriage and you just want to get around people who are like, yeah, you know, your wife is a nag, dude. You, you should just leave. Or, you know, yeah, your husband is just lazy. You deserve to be whatever, right? So you just surround yourself with people that just love encouraging what's already sinful in your life. Maybe some of you, you just want to escape comfortability. You want to escape what God, you know, is doing. And you don't, you don't want to actually move into uncomfort. So, so you go, I'll just get on the boat to Tarshish. It'll solve all your problems. It's not gonna solve your problems. Like Jesus solves your problem, your problem of sin. The boat to Tarshish just ruins it and leads to a darker place. And so what Jonah thinks is freeing him, right, from his sin, like, I'll just ignore it, I'll just hide from it, I'll just get on the boat and leave, is actually causing more damage. It's causing, it's gonna cause more destruction in your life. See, it's just a delusion of your escape from sin. It's a mirage, what the boat to Tarshish is. Oh, cool, so this is gonna actually help me get away from the calling, I'll be unavailable from God, I won't actually have to go where he is calling me to go. So here's a man exposed to his sin, running from God, doing it his way, trying to be his own God, dictating the plans for his life, going, no, this is the way my life's gonna play out, not the way you want it to play out, Lord. And here's what he says in verse four. And this is where you begin to see God display his persistent pursuit of sinners who rebel and run. 
But God, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid, each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was from the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So God goes after Jonah. Understand, this storm is not some like random storm. This is caused by the sovereign one. Okay, so he causes a storm, and it's a storm of mercy. Okay, this is a storm of great mercy to Jonah. This is God going after him to rescue him from his own stupidity. Now, there are a lot of commentators that believe this was God's wrath towards Jonah. Okay, I don't believe that. I'll explain that in a second. But let's just take a second and, and just talk about the wrath of God because God's wrath does come towards rebellion and towards sin, right? So you kind of see, if you just do a study on the wrath of God, you see it flushed out in two main ways. One is the passive wrath of God, okay? This is outlined in Romans 1. This is where, you know, God says, hey, if you do this, it's gonna lead to destruction. We say, I'm well aware of that, God, but I'm gonna do it my own way. I'm smarter than you. I know better than you. I'm gonna do what I want. And God just goes, go get him, big papa, right? Go chase it, right? Go after it with all your might. And then when you do that, well aware of the intentions, it will destroy you. He doesn't always intervene. And he prays that him not intervening would lead you to repent and turn back to him and see that he's good when those things begin to destroy you. That's, that's, his, that's his passive wrath of God. The other one is, is active wrath. This is what you guys grew up with learning in Sunday school. Fire from heaven. Nebuchadnezzar turning into like an animal-like, you know, running around groaning for his whole life, illness, disease. I think the passive wrath of God is much scarier than his active wrath. His active wrath is one that, that comes at us and really wakes us up, Right? I think in our context, we much more see the passive wrath of God. Where he's like, I warned you, I warned you, I warned you. Okay, you just keep running, you just keep chasing, you just keep running, and sometimes never to turn to repent to God. I think his more loving response is active wrath because it wakes you up. It gets your attention. And we see these two different ones now, I don't think that God's wrath was towards Jonah, but rather an act of mercy. Because number one, I don't think there's any indication that Jonah wasn't a child of God. He was a prophet of God. He was aware of his sin. He was grieved by his sin. And 1 Thessalonians and Romans 5 tell us that if you're a believer in Christ, you're not under wrath, but you're under mercy. So that when difficult things happen in your life or bad things happen in your life, it's not an act of punishment, but mercy from God. So, so, so for me, when I was 13 and my dad was diagnosed with sciatica nerve cancer and, his, and a tumor there, like that wasn't God punishing me because I didn't have quiet time three days. He wasn't going, well, oh, Mike, you missed Bible study for three days of the week, so here you go. Your dad's got a sciatica nerve tumor. No, that was God in some ways, his gracious mercy saying, hey, you're going to walk through that as a family. And somehow in the providence of God to ways I don't fully understand, and I've, I've seen the good and the bad, right, that God is showing mercy, not punishment to me in that case. So you can know if you're experiencing something, you're a child of God. It's not wrath but mercy. I believe that's what we're seeing in Jonah. Man, he causes disaster. He causes a storm, but it's all in mercy bringing him back to himself. It's the kindness of God that God sends the storm. See, rebellion never escapes God. Like running from him, like it, you didn't like run somewhere where he couldn't see you. It's just a question of when he'll intervene and how he'll do it. 
And he always does. And here, God sends a storm. Now, the crew gets afraid. When the crew gets afraid, you got problems. Okay, because, man, the crew understood storms. Like, they, they've been out in the boat before where there were, there were big wakes and big waves. So this was clearly a storm that caused them to be terrified. They start hurling cargo out of their ship because they don't want to fill up. Right? They don't want to, to drift on. They want to be more like a cork that bobs above water. So they're trying to hurl everything out. And as they're doing all of these things and trying to get rid of the water somehow in all of this, <laughs> what's so amazing is pagans are all calling out to their deity and Jonah is fast asleep. He's in his sleep of false security. He thinks he's hid from God and he doesn't need him. And he thinks he's escaped God's call in his life. He doesn't think he needs to turn in obedience with no thought that God is after him. Verse six, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. But they said to one another, come, let us cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. So these sailors are superstitious right? They're polytheistic. They're all calling out to all their different gods, and nothing's really working. So they're like, all right, we need someone who's got some kind of vein or line to the, the true God or the source of this evil, so let's find out who that is so it can, it can solve the problem. So they see the stowaway downstairs. They pull straws, do whatever they do, and they go, okay, well, clearly it's this guy. So they, they, they start wanting to wake him up, going, okay, well, what God do you serve? Like, is that why all this is happening? We've never seen a storm like this. And in their superstition, God uses it in his providence as everyone turns to their own deity, assuming that they're going to find a solution. And can you imagine the feeling of Jonah, right? You're caught. God caught you, right? When you're sleeping, you're under the ship, you think you're free, you think you're getting away from it, you're on your boat to Tarshish, everything's going to solve, and then all of a sudden, some of us know what that's like, right? When you're caught, when God catches you, it's like, oh, shoot. Like I remember when, as a, as a younger kid, I, I loved skateboarding, and so I would go, and I would tell my parents, well, I'm gonna go to this elementary school nearby, but I'm actually going to go inside my head. I would go to this big place, like it was this big supermarket. It was much farther away. I wasn't really allowed to go there, so I did that one day. My dad drove to the supermarket, saw that I was there. There was a 7-Eleven, saw me go inside, get a Slurpee, come out, didn't say anything, went home. I eventually come back home. My dad's like, hey, how was skateboarding? Oh, it was great, Dad. How was the Slurpee? What do you mean? Right, like, caught, right? Just like, what, 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 what do you mean? What do you, what do you mean? Is it? Right, I saw you. You can't, you can't run from me, right? Parents, kids, you know that. I don't know how parents do it. I mean, they just see all things, right? You just can't escape it. Some of you older people, you remember when you were a kid, right? You just couldn't escape it. The parents, some things they don't, repent. Okay, later, in the car ride home, share with them all the things that they didn't catch you in. No, I'm just kidding. But look, this is like that idea of just that sick pit in your stomach of these people come down, they wake you up, and you're like, oh, man, God's caught me. And I pray God would do that more in your life, that when you think you've escaped him, he would graciously catch you in your sin and in your running. You know, it's a gracious act of his. He's actually loving and protecting you from greater damage and greater destruction in your life. And you think he's just being a jerk and annoying and a cosmic killjoy when really it's for your good and for your joy and for your betterment. Amazing what we see here. And so they say to this in verse eight, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What are the people? What people are you? 
And he said to them, a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, the one who made the sea and the dry land. Okay, that's the natural response to respond to a stowaway in a moment of panic. Where are you from? What do you do? Who's your God, right? You just see them, they're freaking out, like their life's on the line. They just ask him a hundred questions, don't even let him respond. And here's what's so interesting. Jonah answers every question except the one of his occupation. Why? Because that's where he's self-righteous. That's where his identity is. And he's ashamed. See, sin and shame void of the cross leads to utter depression. And you see right here, he answers every question. He says, oh, I'm a Hebrew. That's the people I am. Oh, I worship the God of heaven, the one who made all things, the sea and the dry land. He didn't say, I'm a prophet who's running from his call. Now, he's going to in just a minute. But in the moment, he was ashamed. And he doesn't answer that question. And I think he didn't answer it because it was the very thing he had built his identity in that was being ripped away. Now, the sailors are terrified because he's identified with the true God. Look at the next verse, 13. Nevertheless, no, verse 10, sorry. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you? that the sea may, be, may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Okay, so Jonah tells them not only the God he worships, but that he wasn't obedient to the call of God and is running from them, and that's why this punishment is coming. That's why the storm is raging. Okay, so, so he acknowledges it here, and the sailors are probably thinking, okay, dude, if your God is the God of the sea, why did you pick this mode of transportation? Well, like, couldn't you take in a plane? Didn't exist. A train? Didn't exist. Then walk, right? Like, if he's the God of the sea who made the sea, why get on the sea to try to run from him? Right, because they're very superstitious. I just kind of see the, the laughing internally, right? If you're the God, this is the God who made the sea and dry land, why did you get on a boat? If he can cause the sea to do whatever he wants. Now, Jonah could have repented right here, right? He could have turned to God in obedience. He could have acknowledged his sin. He could have done that. But he didn't. He was so ashamed it led to depression. Just kill me. Just kill me. Right, see, this is what Sin and shame, void of the cross, does to the human soul. If you have no hope, right? What he should have been doing is appealing to the same God is gracious, slow to anger, abounding love that caused him to run from Nineveh and apply it in the moment. Okay, yes, I feel shame. Yes, I feel guilt. But my God is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He came after me. In his love, he sent the storm. Because he's so gracious towards me. But he doesn't see that. He's still just covered in self-righteousness and forgetting the grace extended to him through God's 
gift of himself. And it's amazing watching this happen. He's coming to grips with the weight and awareness of his sin. That's what happens when you place your identity in anything void of Jesus. It leads to a dark, depressing place. It leads to a place that you can't stand on. You'll stand up for a few hours or a few days and think you're awesome and you're great, and then as soon as it's ripped away, you get depressed, you fall through, and you're in pleading for the grace and mercy of God. And this is, this is an amazing imagery that we see right here as God is still showing grace to him. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. So they aren't murderous men, they're merciful men. Right? They're still trying to help him out. Right? They didn't just throw him over. They kept trying to roll harder, trying to get to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They realized Jonah's Hebrew God is the God that caused the storm. And they're going, hey, we're innocent of this. This is between you and him. Like, like don't, don't, don't kill us because the storm came. He's the one who's running. He's the one who's rebelling. And, and then don't kill us if we throw him overboard because he asked us to do that. There are two requests. Don't hold us responsible for him and don't let us die. There's a good reverent fear of the true God in this moment where they realize who the true God really is. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. They're out in the middle of the Mediterranean with, listen, Jonah and these people knew there was no hope for survival. They know they're in a place where, hey, we throw them overboard, hey, no one's surviving, no one's making it, okay? And, and the second Jonah lands in the water, the raging sea stops. And here's what I love. God is revealing to these pagan sinners the true nature of the true God who has full authority over all things. Look at what happens next. I love it. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The pagan brothers got saved. <laughs> here's the irony of the whole thing. Hold on, go back with me to the beginning. So, so Jonah is called to go preach to pagan people, wicked people, rebellious people. He doesn't want to do that because it's uncomfortable for him. Life isn't as good for him. It won't be as comfy for him. It won't be as secure for him. So he runs, and in running, the very thing happens. In his running from rebellious pagan people, he runs to rebellious pagan people who God saves by his grace and mercy because of his rebellion. Like God, God listen, this is what's awesome too is God just reveals himself in stopping the ocean. Right? I always say, God doesn't have to force you to love him. He just has to reveal himself to you. So your eyes lay and behold him for just a second and he doesn't conjure, he doesn't force you. You have to believe. When you see the glories of Christ, when your eyes are open, how good he really is, the good news of the gospel, when your wrath was against him, that he stood in your place, became your substitute, took all your sin on himself, had his son killed for you, gave you his righteousness, took all your sin, said forgiven, debt clean, adopted into a new family, you got a new dad, he loves you, he's perfect, eternal home, you go, I'm gonna worship, I'm in. Right, like, like all he has to do is reveal himself. He's not a weak God. I mean, some of us have this mentality that, that in conversion, he had to like force you into it. No, he just revealed himself to you. You couldn't handle it. 
You couldn't. That's why you're a Christian. You couldn't handle the grace you saw. You couldn't handle the mercy you saw. And he grafted you into his fold. And he saved you. Not by righteous works that you did, but by his grace and mercy and kindness in Christ. And he came after you just like Jonah and said, I'm coming after you in your rebellion. You're not going to escape me. Right? This is amazing that we see this. And as soon as they hit the water, it ceased. And these people offer sacrifices to the Lord and make vows. See, Jonah didn't say a word about anything. God revealed himself. He just said who God was. And then God revealed himself and his authority over the storm. Verse 17. The boat just keeps going. That's all we hear. Sailors are gone. Right? That's the only time in the narrative. God doesn't want you to see any more of that. He wants you to be gripped by that. And now all we see is Jonah going, blah, 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 blah. He's sinking, right? Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. God is not done with Jonah. It's not done. I know you're running in my rebellion. I'm going to send a storm. I'm not going to let you die. I'll send a fish. It's all mercy. It's all grace. He could have let him sink to the bottom and die. So I'm not done with you. God's pursuing him. God's keeping him alive. God's protecting him from his self-righteous self. Now, the rationalists, the humanists, right? They struggle with this. A fish swallowed him and he stayed alive for three days. Right away, some, I mean, that's just what people do. Okay, you miss the mind-blowing grace shown Jonah and you're struggling with could he have survived in a body of a fish, Right? I mean, that's what God wants to see. So, so, so listen, man, there have been articles about 70-foot whales and great whites that have swallowed a man, and the man survived, and the man came out. There are sperm whales that have bodies and, and stomachs big enough to hold people. Now, I don't know what a three-night accommodation's like in there. I mean, that's probably not too sweet, all right? But listen, if God can preserve the living embryo in the womb of a woman, can he preserve the life of a wham? A wham? A man. Can he? Let's close in prayer. No, you know what I mean? Like, mm, he does that all the time. You think I communicate for a living, I'd be good at it. So, I'm not. So, so, but here's what he does. I mean, he, he can preserve. He can preserve the living embryo of a little fetus in the, in the womb of a woman. Could he not preserve the life of a man in the stomach of a fish? Couldn't our sovereign God of the universe do that? We got plenty of reasons to see that they're big enough and capable enough, and it's happened post-Jonah. So let's move past that. What are we seeing in chapter one? We're seeing what God has done since Genesis three. In his relentless grace, going after and pursuing rebellious sinners who don't want to live in obedience, who don't want to turn to God, who think they're their own God and their way is better and they have it all figured out and they're all good and they're self-righteous in all their own doing and, and not in what he has done and not in his mercy. So God goes after Jonah just like he's done most of us in this room and said, I'm going to show you mercy. You're running, you're rebelling, I'm going to save you. I'm going to grab you by my grace. And in your stumbling and falling and, and screwing up, he saved you. Not based on any good things you did. 
And some of you guys, I love the stories where some of you guys say, yeah, man, I was just a church kid. I was familiar with church, familiar with the gospel my whole life. And you were just like Jonah, just this guy who just did a lot of religious things, was in a religious environment. You loved all those things. That bolstered you. You thought you were better than other kids in school because you went to church and they didn't. You went to youth group camp, they didn't. And God showed you the destruction and damnation of that just as much as the guy running in outright rebellion, never attending a gospel community. And the gospel leveled the playing field (laughs) where you had no ground for boasting. And he showed you grace. And this is what God did. God is saying to Jonah, don't get confused thinking because you're a prophet, because you speak for me, because you're a real religious man. That makes you good. I'm good. I'm righteous. I'm gracious. I'm merciful. This is what we need to meditate on over and over and over. God saying to Jonah, just like us, you're stubborn, stiff-necked, self-righteous, self-centered, arrogant. But I love you, so I'm causing a storm of mercy. And I care about you enough not to let you go, so I'm going to send a fish, because I'm not done with you. I'm giving you opportunity. I think we need to think a lot more on this idea that God calls and woos us to himself. He opens up our eyes to the glorious name of Jesus. He gives you a firm place to stand. He gives you affection for him and a mind that longs for him now. Not a perfect one, but one that has an inclination to him. And to go away from sin. God's saying, I know you don't have any intrinsic righteousness of your own. It's my righteousness alone that comes after you and saves you and woos you and calls you. And I think the reason we need to meditate this on this a lot is because as I was looking at this this week, this is a profound truth that, that I've said before. When Christ died, you died with him. Like all your ambition All your goals, all that you find prestige in, that died with you, okay? Your dream for your life died, okay? So so now what it has is I'm no longer Mike Reed, white guy. No longer white Reed, you know, kind of upper middle class Burton County pastor. I'm not Mike Reed, you know, one of four in my family. I'm not Mike Reed, a Reed legacy. I'm Mike Reed, son of God. I'm Mike Reed, adopted one in Jesus Christ. It's I am his. I am his. And we run after everything else that culture says should define you, right? Have a better job, have a different place to live, do this, do that, get rid of your family, divorce, leave, just beat your kid, whatever it is. Like just all these other things, solve the problem, just do it the way you wanna do it, sinfully, brokenly, and God shows up powerfully and says, you're not gonna have a place to stand on because when you go after that thing and you try to sit on that and stand on that for security and identity and refuge and it's taken away from you, your life falls apart. It's not sure, it's not lasting, it's not endless, but when you stand on Christ and your identity is wrapped up in him, it doesn't matter what's taken from you, you got a solid place to stand. It's unshakable ground. It's eternal all the way to eternity's shores. And God's saying you need me, you need me, you need me, not because you're good, but because I am righteous. Man, out of this text, how are you gonna respond? How are you gonna respond? You gonna keep hiding? You gonna keep, you can get on the boat? to Tarshish and, and run? 
You think he doesn't see you? You don't see him calling out and running after you and pursuing you, you being here this morning? Is God's kindness to you? Calling out to you? Talking to you? Communicating to you? Come on, stop running. I'm a good father. I'm a good God that extends grace and kindness. Not laws that are begrudging for you. Laws and commands that lead to joy. They don't add to salvation or sufficiency in you, but just show you more of my sufficiency and goodness in me. Maybe there are areas where you need to grow out of self-righteousness towards this city and those who are far from God. Maybe you got just a sinful bent towards those who are far from God. Maybe you don't love lost people. I mean, God's calling us into the city of Paramus to be a light in the midst of this area of Bergen County. We've got to pray for love for this city. Maybe some of you are currently trying to make something other than Jesus your righteousness. It's not going to work. What are you finding it in apart from him? What do you want so badly right now that you think will cure all your problems? And it's not going to. Jesus will. Jesus has. Jesus does. Jesus will continue to. But sometimes God sends a storm in your life in mercy. It makes you a bit uncomfortable for your joy to show you you can't stand on that. You're just chasing empty treasures. Let's ask him to help us. God, we're thankful that you are a good God. God, give us courage. God, we may find our identity and righteousness in Jesus and not us. God, I pray there might even be some in this room this morning who in their running from you See your relentless pursuit of them in their rebellion. <laughs> that your coming after them is out of grace and mercy. That God, it would be an unloving thing to let them continue chasing after things that will kill and destroy their soul. God, may we make much of you. May we be humbled by the places in our life where we think that our kingdom is better than yours. God, would you destroy and dismantle the self-righteous things we do that try to make up for the cross, that try to make up for our deficiencies as sinners. May we be gospel people who constantly look to you as our sufficient one, not look at what we do to be looked at as better, but to see more of you as the best thing God, cultivate in us as a church a longing and hunger to see those far from God brought near. We long to see a Nineveh recaptured by a ferocious God who loves to save sinners and reconcile them to himself so that he gets all the glory for it. The fact that you are letting us participate in your calling and wooing Bergen County to yourself is staggering. And as we observe the Lord's Supper, may we continue to celebrate the centrality of Jesus in all things, that his body and his blood is sufficient for us. In Jesus' name, amen.